Hello from your favorite Grasslands PR team. This week, we are back with another reason why these overlooked and underappreciated ecosystems are objectively the best biome. I'm Rachel. And I'm Nicole. And today, we're talking about Madagascar. <gasps> Finally! And some of its lovely, lovely grasslands that it has. Oh, I'm so excited. Somebody requested this a while back who actually did research in Madagascar. And I did not know until that very moment that there even were grasslands on Madagascar. I assumed it was all just tropical lemur Mm -hmm. habitat. One of our OG grass and groupie fans, Brandon, suggested this one. So much love to you, Brandon. You're lovely. But yeah, he actually did research on Madagascar with the lemurs, and now he has the lovely PhD to prove just how much he loves this island. So hey, hey. <laughs> I hope that the long-awaited Madagascar episode lives up to the hype. <laughs> oh, I'm so hyped for this. Before we do that, I guess some quick news. Just as a reminder, we are doing every other week right now for the podcast. We've just got a lot of stuff going on behind the scenes over here, and uh, you know how it goes. So uh, we'll we'll be back to a uh, our regular every week schedule fairly soon, we hope. Uh, but we're just trying to make sure we continue producing stuff that we think is good and not rushing out uh, episodes just to keep up with our schedule. So. Thanks for your patience, guys. And uh, is there anything else, Nicole? I don't think so. Congrats to Brandon for the PhD. It's yes. What an awesome accomplishment. I'm just saying that. <laughs> and to everyone else that graduated this year, maybe you didn't get as much fanfare as usual. You're awesome. You're doing good stuff. All right. I want to hear about Madagascar. <laughs> well, good, because I want to talk about Madagascar. Like you said, whenever people picture Madagascar, they really just picture these lush forests, a ton of different lemurs, and like, yeah, that's really, really cool. Isn't Madagascar where the vanilla orchid comes from? There's a ton of different orchids, but I don't know for sure if vanilla is from there. I wouldn't yeah. be surprised. Yeah, that's but that's like the kind of habitat I picture is like yeah. epiphytic plants on uh, rainforest style trees with like orchids and all kinds of other yes. very jungly stuff (laughs) yes 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 absolutely and you know it's it's the fourth largest island in the world it's pretty well explored we know a lot about it but it's really only recently and by recently i mean like the last five years (laughs) that people started to realize you know huh like 65 to 80 percent of this place is covered in grasslands you know what's 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 going on there why is there so much grasslands here (laughs) 60 to 70 percent yes oh my god what is this nonsense grassland erasure i'm kind of upset now (laughs) we're gonna correct this holy you should be upset Um, but real quick, just to kind of set the scene, I want to talk about Madagascar's climate. This is all very vague and overarching. Madagascar is, is an island, so it has a lot of really interesting things going on with it, with a lot of ocean winds blowing in, you know, warm or cold air. So it's it has a lot of smaller ecosystems within the island. But in general, the east coast of Madagascar... Um, is going to be pretty wet. That's going to be where all those really lush rainforests with all the beautiful orchids are going to be and all those fun lemurs. 
So it can get up to like 150 inches of rain, which is like 3,800 millimeters of rain each year due to all these strong ocean currents. And on the opposite side of the island, southwest kind of corner of it, it's very much a desert with only about 14 inches of rain or 1,000 millimeters. Whoa, that gradient though. That's crazy. Insane. Did you say how big the island is? I was going to ask you. Do you do you know how big Madagascar is? It oh, is the God. fourth largest island, and like I've always kind of known that fact, but I didn't realize quite how big it was. Really? Well, okay. It's it's hard as as you know now. I have absolutely no sense <laughs> of like scale or surface area or whatever. Mm-hmm. And um, our world maps are very you know, skewed because of the, our attempt to make them into rectangles. Yeah. So, like, picturing it off the coast of Africa isn't really much of a sense of the, the real true scale of this island compared to other islands on the planet. So, uh, Yes, especially since Africa see. is so big. <laughs> I'm going to say it's as big as Texas. Oh, it is so much bigger than Texas. <laughs> oh, you're kidding me. I thought that was an overestimate. No. Oh, no. Yeah, so... I got on Google Maps and I started just like, I like measured how long Madagascar is because it's pretty, like, it's much longer north south than it is like wide east west. It's about 950 miles long north to south. So, okay. For a frame of reference, <laughs> I got you. I got you. Um, that's like Wichita, Kansas to Las Vegas. Oh, wow. Okay. Yeah. That's a lot of. Miles. <laughs> yes. Um, I, I I then zoomed around on planet Earth and I found some other, <laughs> another uh, frame of reference for non-Kansas people. Um, it's Lisbon, Portugal to Geneva, Switzerland. So, like, it's a big island. Yeah. Wow. Just very, very large. And so, like I said, it has a lot of those kind of little microclimates and... The northern part of the island does have a mountain range in it, which also creates this kind of rain shadow effect where the middle of the island actually is fairly dry. So the coasts are going to have a lot of forests and things like that. And then the middle of the island is in what, you know, is called a rain shadow. We learned about them last week at Dig Arboretum's amazing Earth Partnerships for School program. Oh my gosh. <laughs> and it's it's very mountainous. It's very dry. And this is where we find a lot of the grasslands in Madagascar. Depending mm. on what source you are reading, these grasslands are often just called forests. <laughs> oh, I'm so mad. <laughs> are they savannas? They are savannas. Okay. They can be heavily treed. But then there's also a lot of portions of it like if you google madagascar some humid forests so subhumid aka not quite humid forests you will pull up a picture that is like this little like kind of farmstead looking house with like three trees and then just a huge expanse of grass (laughs) and that is like the picture that they're using to describe the subhumid forest and i'm just oh wow angry about it um <laughs> there's just like um little riparian riparian is that even the correct uh you know like a river uh-huh. 
riverine photograph too where it's yeah. it's literally just a grassland with a few trees not even like a, a big riparian zone or anything with trees yeah. in it it's just <laughs> it's just a grassland with some trees yeah <laughs> oh god that's so frustrating <laughs> it's so frustrating and if if you kind of want to google some oh other my pictures god. oh, oh i'm so sorry i just, just saw mad. another one that literally looks like africa like yeah. i mean it is africa but mm-hmm. um it, it just looks like an African savanna. It's got like those almost acacia profiled trees. Yeah. And it's it's like from one earth. It's their image for the Madagascar subhumid forests. Holy. Yeah. Isn't that insane? <laughs> I'm enraged. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so cool. Okay. Sorry. Continue. No, no. I, I, I wanted to get you mad. So <laughs> it worked. <laughs> it's not hard. <laughs> uh. Uh. But yeah, and so sometimes you will find like literature that calls them savannas or open canopy forests, but a lot of times they're just called subhumid forests. And gotcha. that, that seems like that's kind of an older term, and the more recent literature is is calling it savannas and acknowledging that they are a grassland ecotype. So that's mm. super nice. Um, this area is also called the Central Highlands. Um, but again, if you search Central Highlands, you get a lot of information about how it's a forest and, you know, it, it, it's just very sad. But mm-hmm. <laughs> that is why we are here today, <laughs> to set the record straight. Yay! <laughs> are you ready? <laughs> oh, I'm, I've been ready. Let's go. <laughs> okay, so like I said, especially a lot of the older literature, they call all of these grasslands forests. More recent research is saying, no, they're definitely grasslands. They are different. But just in general, there is a ton of controversy, not just over, you know, is it a grassland or not, but are they natural or not? Ooh, so ooh, this is what I'm here for. Yes. Ooh, this is exciting. <laughs> <laughs> um, so 2016, there was a paper called Madagascar's Grasses and Grasslands, Anthropogenic or Natural? And it's a really, really good paper, and it's just kind of tackling, you know, is it natural? Is it human-made? Because as we know, a lot of grasslands are often used for agriculture, for grazing, things like that. So sometimes it can be kind of hard to untangle, you know, which one came first. Mm-hmm. And from 2016 to, I even found some papers that were published like this year, it's been hit really hard trying to figure out exactly what is going on with these grasslands. And, you know, just like other grasslands, the Madagascar grasslands very much thrive on disturbances, um, and especially grazing is used a lot today. One of the kind of interesting points that it have brought up is that we don't really know you know, if these grasslands predate humans, which is what a lot of the more recent literature shows or suggests, mm. I guess. It, it what, suggests that they do predate humans? Yes, they do predate humans. Okay. So were there before humans? What was on this island that was grazing the grasslands to keep them there? Because if there were no grazers, this grassland is completely, you know, surrounded by forest. The forest mm. should have taken over if... It's a natural grassland that was there before humans and before the cattle that we, you know, brought to the grasslands. Right. And really, we don't quite know. There is 
um, ancient animals like um, some large tortoises and uh, an extinct species of pygmy hippo that were definitely grazers. But it's hard to say exactly, you know, how much they ate, how many there were, things like that. You know, were just these two groups of animals, hippos and tortoises, were they enough to, to create these grasslands and to keep them there until, you know, we brought grazers over of our own as those animals died off? Mm. Kind of an interesting question. Yeah. And this study in particular, this 2016 study, uh, found that, you know, like I said, the Madagascar grasslands do predate humans and they are extremely, extremely unique and they have an insane amount of grass species. There are 541 species of grasses found on Madagascar that we know of right now. Wow. (laughs) 216 of those grass species are found nowhere else. That's crazy. Uh, Geologically, like real quick, just to, you know, set the stage a little bit, it's similar to... Africa the most, right? Or do they share geologic history with other places? Like, are the weird grasses, like, most related to other African grasses? The ones that are not endemic, so aka found nowhere else, are very much African grasses. Yes. Cool. Cool. And so, I mean, that's 40% of the total grass species are endemic and therefore found nowhere else. And for that to happen, you know it pretty strongly suggests that these grasslands are natural. Even if we don't quite know what those grazers could have been in the past, for there to be that many unique species that are found literally nowhere else, it pretty heavily suggests that these are in true natural wonder and they are worthy of our, you know, conservation and admiration. Oh, yeah, absolutely. That is so insane. Like, the the divergences must go back so far for them to have diverged that much. And for them to, like, have, I don't know, had enough uh, ecological diversity to, to split mm-hmm. up into so many different types of grasses. Like, that's so cool. Yeah. Move over, Madagascar orchids. We've got some <laughs> grasses that need conservation <laughs> and are perfectly valid. <laughs> yes, I love it. <laughs> oh, gosh. I'm not joking. Oh, no. I, oh, I am very much aware. <laughs> well, I just needed our listeners to understand that. Yes, um, that's right. Yeah, no, this is, this is incredible. <laughs> <laughs> this 2016 paper, you know, they very much admitted like, hey, we don't really know how much grass those ancient megafauna ate. But there is some suggestion that fire definitely played a big role in these ecosystems. And that okay. is how they persisted just natural fires that would sweep across and keep the trees at bay so that's kind of interesting because there has to be some kind of disturbance and if it's yes. not grazers or at least the grazers aren't in a significant number to like provide that level of disturbance mm-hmm. fires like the obvious next bet <laughs> yeah definitely and it's interesting that at least in the past fire played such a big role in this ecosystem and maybe that's why there are so many unique grasses because you know different kinds of grasses will react differently to different kinds of management strategies Um, i'm gonna Mm. reference dick arboretum again because i love them and they're just on my mind because we were just there but (laughs) you know brad gurr at dick arboretum mentioned that their prairie restoration plots 
they can't just mow or just burn because they won't have the same diversity of grasses. So they have a three-year management strategy where one year is fire, one year is mowing, which is essentially, you know, simulated grazing. And then one year they just let it sit and just kind of recover. So it's interesting that, you know, the American prairies really need both in order to be as diverse as possible. And then these Madagascar grasslands kind of maybe had more of a fire background versus grazing, which is what they're getting now. And it'll be interesting, Mm. you know, going forward now that we are doing more research into these grasslands to see how they change over time with more of a, you know, grazing pressure versus a fire pressure, which there is still fire used, but I don't think it's used as much as the grazing. Right. Yeah. So that's completely changing the level of competition and the style of competition within those grasses. Yes. If they've evolved over time to take advantage of the fire disturbances and Mm -hmm. yeah. Ooh, that's so interesting. Yeah. And that's just me. Like there's not really any research on that particular part. I I think it's cool. (laughs) Yeah. That was like my fear too, because, you know, asking these questions is really important, but I know that they are questions in particular because as you started out pointing out, uh, they, they really haven't even classified these ecosystems as grasslands yeah. Until somewhat recently. <laughs> yeah. So they're not really studying them from that uh, perspective if they are studying them. Yes. Or I'm assuming that they aren't. Yeah. Yeah. No, absolutely. I'll go into more detail about some of this controversy because it's pretty interesting. <laughs> and the same lead researcher um, of this Anthropogenic or Natural 2016 paper has also put forth um, papers just this year in 2021 detailing some future research that they want to do but it's behind a paywall so i can't access it so that's great um <laughs> didn't use sci-hub no it didn't work oh dang I okay i hate yeah. it when that happens i was very sad so did not work i thought about emailing them but you know it's okay maybe one day yeah tweet them <laughs> yes and this published paper that they just did in uh, 2021 was actually in direct response to another paper in 2021, which was also behind a paywall, but it was called mm. Seeing the Forest for the Trees and the Grasses, Revisiting hey. the Evidence for Grazer Maintained Grasslands in Madagascar Central Highlands. And it sounds so good, but I can't access it. So very sad. Ugh, that's incredibly unfortunate. I know. So if you have some way to find those papers, let me know. I'd love to read them. But anyways. Taking notes in my brain that we need to tweet them immediately after this episode. (laughs) But anyway, like I said, there's a lot of really cool research that's all pretty recent. I found another paper uh, in 2020 called Fire and Grazing Determined Grasslands of Central Madagascar Represent Ancient Assemblages. So obviously, (sighs) it's Um, (laughs) pro-grassland. Did you say determinative? Determined grasslands of Central. Oh, okay. I was just making sure I didn't need to get a term defined that I hadn't heard before. Uh, okay, cool. Yeah. There's there's some good ones, but I tried to omit them as much as possible. Neat. <laughs> but this paper was tw- in 2020. It had super extensive grass sampling. So did our 2016 paper, which I think is really interesting that these more recent papers aren't just relying on o- old data. They are actually like going out in the field, collecting their own research, wait, collecting their own data, <laughs> and then you know, extrapolating from there. 
I think that's super, super cool. And I guess it's almost needed since in the past, these grasslands weren't even considered grasslands. Um, <laughs> yeah. But it's still really cool. <laughs> uh, but they they support this ancient lineage of Malagasy grasslands and put forth a really desperate cry for conservation. The last bit of the discussion kind of sums this up really well, so I'm just going to do a direct quote. In Madagascar, grasslands are dismissed as wastelands in need of forest restoration. The most commonly planted trees are exotic, eucalyptus, acacia, and penis species, species known as invasive elsewhere in the world. There is a clear need for science to engage with regions, hereto dismissed as being of no value for the sake of future conservation, land management, and livelihoods. Wow. It's just so good. Like, not only are these grasslands, you know, considered just degraded forests, we're actually actively planting trees to take them over, and they're not even native trees. Oh, that's infuriating. (laughs) Oh, no. I know. Uh. And I found another study (laughs) in 2018. This one, so... I don't know how to pronounce their name. I'm going to try really hard. Solofondranohatra, maybe. But they did this 2018 study and the 2020 study that I just mentioned. And this 2018 study compared different sites along the central highlands of Madagascar. So this, you know, very elevated, dry area. And they were trying to split out the grasslands from savannas, from forests, and they did find that, you know, the forests had significantly different plant communities than what we are now classifying as savannas. You know, different, diff- not just different trees, but also, you know, a lot of different grasses and forbs and things like that. So this very much supports that it's not just a degraded forest. It is a savanna and it's unique and it is very much overlooked. Mm. And admittedly, this, like I said, um, this person did both of these papers and pretty much all of their recent papers are pro-grassland papers um, that take place in Madagascar. So perhaps there's a slight bias, but I support it. grasslands? (laughs) Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, that's what we need, it sounds like, because that's, you know, been the blind spot for, you know, ecological efforts on the island. So, Mm -hmm. Uh, Absolutely. (laughs) so now that we talked about all the pro grasslands papers i i have to you know touch on the anti-grassland papers a little bit but something (laughs) something interesting to note is a lot of them are very old Mm. so this first one is a 1996 paper titled deforestation and its effects in highland madagascar and it's by gade The first sentence of the introduction. Are you ready for this? I'm ready. Let's go. Okay. And I quote, The highlands of Madagascar form one of the bleakest landscapes in the non-arid tropics, devoid of native trees or animals, scarred by relentless erosion, and covered in floristically impoverished grasses floristically impoverished why did they have to go after the grasslands so hard 
I don't Jesus. know. Jesus. <laughs> that was completely uncalled for <laughs> and completely just biologically untrue, ecologically untrue, and oh, <laughs> infuriating as a grasslander uh-huh. um, to, to hear just such blatant disregard for an important ecosystem. Yeah. Not even disregard. Like, that's like active, like, v- hate. vehement aggression yeah, vitriol. <laughs> vitriol thank you yeah no it, and it's so interesting though because people are passionate about this that these grasslands are degraded forests and they're destroying madagascar like this Holy is what shit. is actually taught in schools like in madagascar <gasps> apparently I, i'm not from madagascar but i read that on multiple different sites that this is the common thought and the common you know frame of mind that we're using to do, you know, conservation on Madagascar, that these grasslands are completely human made and they're, mm. there's nothing there. They're ugly. They're one of the bleakest landscapes in the non-arid tropics. Like, hmm. what a statement. Yeah. And I think... Okay, so so I'm going to, like, scale back a little bit of, like, my intensity uh-huh. in reaction to their intensity <laughs> because there there is a narrative mm-hmm. um, that, you know, maybe wasn't based on a, any kind of science that was done that those grasslands were human-made. And, mm-hmm. and from that framework, I guess it does make sense to say that, hey, this is a degraded ecosystem and it really needs to be restored to a forest – but now that we know better, that's where we need to come in now and, like, sort of change that perspective around. Because I, the, yes. the perspective that they had against the grasslands is valid if viewed from the framework of what we thought was true of those ecosystems. Yes, that is It's fair. just not valid because the premise is not true. <laughs> <And then laughs> these are ecologically diverse, mm-hmm. unique ecosystems that have uh, a valid presence in Madagascar that, mm-hmm. you know – uh, we we have only barely begun to understand, and it may be you know I think Madagascar has a, a history of some um, pretty intense extinctions, right? Of their yeah. endemic fauna, yeah. So it may be that a lot of the animals that used those grasslands historically are not as present mm-hmm. anymore, or have gone extinct. So yeah. maybe it's harder to see for those reasons the mm-hmm. e- ecological benefit of the grasslands, and that makes sense. But you know. Now that we know better, let's let's fix the narrative. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Use that lens to mm. do better. Yeah. And that is something that I was thinking about was when we think of endemics, so species found nowhere else, on Madagascar, a lot of times we talk about the animals, which is fine. We can talk about animals. And we think about the endemics that live in the forests on the edge of Madagascar and how they don't have a lot of space to go. So as you know, these grasslands maybe are expanding because of human settlement. We now are losing those forests and then we're losing those species. But Mm -hmm. I do wonder, you mentioned, you know, a lot of the grassland animals absolutely could have been erased since human settlement as well. So it's harder to appreciate them because the grasslands don't have as many endemic species as these like really weirdly biodiverse hotspots that are the forests of Madagascar. <laughs> right. It's kind of unfair to compare 
what is a degraded grassland to these forests that are insanely rich in biodiversity. But that's okay. Yeah. More research is needed. Yeah. That's, you know, just the, the answer, you know? Absolutely. And it's exciting. And I hope that folks in Madagascar who are interested in the ecology of their island and the protection of their endemic natural resources, I hope that they start to to feel that the grasslands may also be a source of, you know, that pride that they have for, for their forests, too, and those endemic species. Yeah, absolutely. We're not saying that the forests aren't important. It's just the grasslands also are, too. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, but yeah, so that, that paper, I unfortunately could not access the whole thing. But just the passion in it that came across just like the small portion that I could read was very startling. <laughs> um, mm-hmm. And then there's one more recent paper that I found that was actually published in May of 2021 by Joseph and Seymour. And it was titled The Unlikely Antiquity of Madagascar's Grasslands. And they bring to question, again, the age of these grasslands and are specifically criticizing a paper in 2008 by Bond, which was called The Antiquity of Madagascar's Grasslands. So literally literally a direct complaint, critique, a direct critique (laughs) of this specific paper, which I found a lot of these while I was researching this because, again, tensions are high. Like, people have a lot of feelings about these grasslands on Mm -hmm. both sides. Are they degraded forests? Have they always been here? Are they human-made? There's a lot of feelings (laughs) wrapped up in this, and a lot of the papers use very like, emotional language. They're not written, like, they're, they're written scientifically, but I think it's interesting. Like, I've never read so many papers like back to back to back that were filled with like emotional language and filled with Mm -hmm. I don't know just like a more laid back writing style versus like you know what we think of scientific papers being where they're all really boring with a bunch of graphs inaccessible language scientific words yeah Mm -hmm. yeah just that one opening uh sentence or paragraph whatever that you read was it was very surprising how emotionally charged it was. Like, it, yeah, it, I've never really read a scientific paper that was that. Like, it sounded like a like an op ed. Yeah, yeah, and not a, a scientific paper. Like, I've I've certainly read a lot of scientific papers that have really emotional pleas, um, mm-hmm. but usually it's like in the discussion portion where they're like. <laughs> wow, this ecosystem is so wonderful. Mm. Uh, and this is why my work is important and not like the, the premises. Ah! <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's rough. <laughs> yeah, and that's like not supposed to be like a, it's a good critique of of that. But I, I guess I'm not trying to say that like, ah, oh, these scientists are all like completely unprofessional or something. It, it, it does show no. that they have a lot of passion for these ecosystems um, I just yes. hope that that passion doesn't get in the way of understanding the new sciences that are coming out about yeah. currently unvalued ecosystems. Yes. Hmm. But yeah, this this 2021 paper um, by Joseph and Seymour, like I said, calls into question this specific 2008 paper. And they mention that a lot of recent 
studies and papers coming out reference this Bond 2008 paper, which is a really good critique because if everyone is using, you know, one paper as kind of a jumping off point for this research, that can lead to not super great science. But like I said earlier, a lot of the papers that I was reading, if they did mention Bond, it was kind of in passing. It wasn't they weren't basing their research necessarily off of that. Like they were actually going out into the field, collecting their own data, and then drawing conclusions from that. So I think that that critique is a little eh. Mm. And they did mention that, you know, the fossil record there doesn't show a lot of those big herbivores that we would expect to have with grasslands, like I mentioned earlier. Really, it was just hippos and tortoises. Did they have the power to shape their environment that much? We probably will really never know. Tortoises do eat a lot of food. They, If they're awake, they're pretty much grazing. Mm-hmm. Like, and hippos are the same way. They're big animals, so they need a lot of food. But was it enough to make a grassland? Who knows? And maybe that's, I mean, and they're savannas too. Like, it's not like it's a grassland devoid of trees in most of Madagascar. It is a savanna and there's lots of trees. So, you know, maybe it was the fires that kind of worked together with these grazers. Who knows? But I did appreciate that there are some critiques out there, and they're definitely worthy of reading. Um, but I don't know. I also saw that uh, the Joseph and Seymour paper mentioned that, you know, many of the grasses in the 2008 paper were lumped as grassland dependent, and Joseph and Seymour said that they're really forest dependent. Mm. But I feel feel like maybe this criticism kind of comes more from the fuzzy line of what the heck even is a grassland and if it's if it has trees it's not a grassland like right yeah eh, like because other papers have shown that the savannas have different grasses than the true forests so eh, i don't know Hmm. yeah right right maybe maybe uh (laughs) this is a sign that the scientific community needs to be better at defining those open grassland ecosystems that have trees yeah. <laughs> and you know because that even for us with grassland groupies has been a little bit of a, a struggle mm-hmm. and it's fortunate for us that we've encountered you know mostly so far uh sources where they recognize the difference between like an open woodland and a true forest where like you know, yeah. maybe they call it an open woodland, but they're very clearly distinguishing it as like a grassland habitat type or a savanna, mm-hmm. even if they're not quite using the the same language as other sources. But man, like Mad- Madagascar is having some problems here <laughs> with with their definitions. <laughs> yeah. yeah, just a little bit. <laughs> and there was a bunch of other papers that I found, but I don't want to bore you with like too many case studies, but it's insane. So, obviously, these grasslands of Madagascar are the center of some debate. Just a little bit. And I feel like there's more evidence pointing towards them being ancient, natural grasslands than not. Especially since a lot of the more recent research is supporting this. Um, Because, Mm -hmm. as we know, science evolves and it changes. We change our mind all the time. It's one of the coolest things about science. (laughs) And so it still breaks my heart that so many websites and so many, you know, papers really just call them wastelands, useful only for agriculture. 
even the World Wildlife Fund has a page. It is called oh. Central Madagascar. <gasps> and it talks about how the scattered forests here are in need of saving. The first mm. sentence on this page reads, and I quote, This ecoregion contains a large number of endemic species found in the remaining forest patches and also in some of the wetland areas, but the remaining habitats are highly fragmented and surrounded by a sea of anthropogenic grasslands and agricultural areas that have almost no biological value. <gasps> World Wildlife Fund! I am disappointed. Oh, can we lodge a complaint? <laughs> <laughs> We're just going to tweet them with this are, episode. <laughs> oh, please. Yeah. Oh, wow. Yeah. Relentlessly tweet about Madagascar grasslands. Yes, yes, yes. Shit, dude. That's crazy. Yeah. yeah. Seriously, though. They mention, like, super offhand that there is some debate over how much of the grasslands are natural or human-made, but then they continue to only talk about the forests in this region that are in, in need of saving and are in, mm. you know, danger. So it's very, very sad. <laughs> and I will also say that the most recent citation for this page is also 2000. So no way. Okay. Eh, yeah. So again, it's kind of all of these resources that are using older data see these grasslands as degraded forests and really not much else. Okay. So, so we just need to get people to update their science. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Uh, but yeah, and it's weird because 2000 doesn't feel that long ago, but it is 2021. It, it was. <laughs> yep, that was a while ago. <laughs> yeah, and especially as far as like science is concerned, like five years sometimes can be almost too old to reference. So, uh, bam, World Wildlife mm. Fund. They also had the really old page on Saiga Antelope too. So they need someone to just redo the whole website, but that is a huge undertaking because wow, do they have very specific pages available, like yeah. a page on the central region of Madagascar. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, so I appreciate that they have so much information on their website, and they are a really awesome organization. Like, don't get me wrong, but I got some bones to pick. <laughs> yeah, well, and how are they supposed to know if they don't get some really enthusiastic grasslanders who... <laughs> probe them with the new science about their yes. outdated websites. Yeah. <laughs> oh, Given perfect. their premise about the importance of Madagascar's central highlands, they probably aren't prioritizing looking up new information about it. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, And they even mention, you know, lots of endemics live here, but apparently <laughs> only in the few scattered forests. Only in the few scattered... These... Madagascar grasslands. A lot of them are savannas. Savannas are grasslands. Mm -hmm. Savannas are grasslands with trees in them. Right. Okay. Established. <laughs> I wanted to take a moment and let the trees have their moment of glory. And I was going to actually talk about a tree. Okay. On the podcast. Okay. Great. Which is like, you know. We've told we said multiple times like f trees, et cetera, et cetera. That was from but, an extreme prairie perspective, though, and we know better now. It is. It is yes. true for prairie environments for the most part, but not for mm -hmm. grasslands as a whole. 
Yes. So I'm going to talk about trees and I'm actually really excited. I'm just being dramatic. (laughs) I want to talk about baobabs. Oh, are they on Madagascar too? Yeah. Fun. Okay. So it's funny that you say that. Where do you think of them living? Africa. Yeah. There's one species of baobabs on Africa, the main continent. Okay. There are six endemic only to Madagascar. Holy <laughs> balls. <laughs> yeah. Like, again, just weird erasure of just random things on Madagascar while we yeah. praise the lemurs, which are cool. Don't come at me, Brandon. I know you love <laughs> lemurs. Um, <laughs> but baobabs are so cool. And there's six of them that are endemic to Madagascar, one in Africa, and then one all the way in Australia. And we'll get to him in a second. He's kind of weird. But baobabs as a whole are just really, really fascinating and really cool trees. They really are kind of only found in a savanna kind of ecosystem. They really need space to grow and to spread because they are very large trees. So Mm -hmm. if you've never seen one, please Google a picture of one because they are just Susian and don't look like they should (laughs) exist. They have these giant engorged trunks. A lot of times it kind of looks like multiple trunks kind of spiraling around each other. And then their, their limbs are often completely leafless and just kind of almost look like roots up in the air. And there's actually a lot of really interesting like folklore surrounding this where Apparently, the baobab was kind of just thrust into the ground upside down. And like, I don't know. It has a lot of really cool cultural significance because most of it is edible. There's a lot of animals that use it. So in Africa, you'll find uh, like elephants browsing actually not just on the leaves, but on the the trunk itself. They will Hmm. gouge out strips of the bark and chew on it to get the water from the bark because... The baobab looks engorged because it is. It has tons of water inside of its trunk. Wow. Because it lives in these savannas that are extremely sunny and hot and dry. So the way it got around that is just to just engorge itself with water anytime it rains. And they actually will swell or kind of narrow in size depending on how much rain it's gotten recently, which is kind of cool. Yeah, it's very cool. This is also a super ancient lineage of trees, and they live for a super long time. They mature super, super slowly because, again, most of the year they don't even have leaves on them. (laughs) So they can't grow if they don't have leaves because that's the part of the plant that is doing photosynthesis and producing food for it. And so they take at least about 20 years to reach maturity and start you know, producing its first flowers that will then become fruit that are full of seeds so that it can spread. And those fruit are also extremely nutritious. They have tons of vitamin C and calcium in them. And then the nuts inside have, I believe, a lot of potassium. So it's like a superfood, uh, both for mm. animals and humans. And so it's just, I don't, it's just a really, really cool tree. And like I said, they get very, very large. Um, One of the largest was actually the Sunland Baobab in South Africa. 
It was a giant baobab that in 1993 was actually turned into a bar. Oh, I think I saw an article about this. <laughs> it's fascinating because these trees, as they kind of grow and they expand outward, they will often end up with a hollow center on the inside. And that's that hollow center is often used by animals as shelter, but also, you know, for people for shelter. It's used for making stables for horses, jail cells, um, or even wow. tourist attractions like this bar. And... This particular bar, it actually had two cavities inside of the baobab because this tree was absolutely gigantic. So the first cavity was like a proper bar with seats and, you know, a place to order from, things like that. But then there was mm-hmm. a tiny little kind of side channel that they stored all of the alcohol. It was like a naturally cooled cellar because of all of the airflow that was going through this tree. It was actually, I believe it stayed about like 70 degrees Fahrenheit, 22 Celsius inside of this tree, whereas like outside it can be quite a bit hotter, uh, which is really cool. And this tree was about 22 meters high, 72 feet, and 47 meters in circumference, (laughs) 150 feet. So they are significantly wider than they all are tall. They tend to kind of reach a max height and then stop growing upwards and only grow outwards. So it can reach absolutely gigantic proportions. Unfortunately for the Sunland Baobab, it actually split in 2017 and ended up falling. Um, It's pretty natural for these trees to go through this because that hollow center eventually just won't be able to support it. But what's kind of interesting is that they think this tree was almost 2,000 years old. And while there might have been some excavation for the bar, for the most part, they left it kind of how they found it. It's not like they hollowed it out and, you know, disrupted the integrity of the tree. It Mm -hmm. just kind of fell one day for no discernible reason. And there's a lot of other ancient baobabs around the world in the last 20 or so years that have met very similar fates. And all of them were extremely old, like over a thousand years old. And for all of these trees to just suddenly start dying all together like this is pretty alarming. Um, And scientists don't really know why all of a sudden they're dying. The only real answer that they can come up with is climate change. And I mean, it makes sense. But it's unfortunately one without a really good or easy solution. Because we don't know what is causing it. Well, and if it's climate change related, I mean, that's hard enough for us to mitigate right now in general, let alone, you know, not knowing which aspect of it is affecting them. Yeah, it's having the answer of climate change is nice, but it's also like, oh, okay, you can't fix climate change overnight, unfortunately. So it's it doesn't have an easy solution. So we might end up losing a lot of our baobab trees. And these ancient ones are kind of like a canary in the gold mine kind of situation where, you know, at least, thank goodness, people are paying attention to this and noticing this trend of all these really ancient trees just suddenly dying. And especially with a tree that takes 20 or even maybe 200 years in really dry climates to mature, It's not good that we're losing these really ancient ones. Right, yeah. Oh, God. Yeah. Distressing. A little bit. (laughs) On on a a light note, I found an article by National Geographic on this, and it was called 
Africa's oldest trees are dying, and scientists are stumped. (laughs) (laughs) Wait, that's light. Oh, is it because it's a joke? It's a pun? Is that why it's lighthearted? That was not lighthearted, Nicole. I know. I'm sorry. I tried. Very poor taste. (laughs) These poor baobabs. I know. I don't approve. I'm I'm not. I'm not laughing, I'm smiling, and I'm sad about it. <laughs> I'm so sorry. Thanks. Wow. Well, I'm disappointed in you. <laughs> I'm so sorry. Okay, here's here's a better thing. There okay, is okay. an entire foundation that ex- solely exists for Baobab research and conservation. It's called the oh, Baobab good. Foundation. So they're doing really good, good work. Yes. <laughs> Uh, I found the Little Big Baobab book by Dr. Sarah Venter. It's just a little PDF that I found online. I think it was like 10 pages. Talks all about baobabs. Really, really well written. Has a lot of really, really cool pictures in it um, that I really couldn't find elsewhere. Like there's a lot of like articles and like blog posts about baobabs. But this one was just super, super well put together. So we'll definitely include a link in the description because I really, really liked it. Um, But... You know, they talked about how old they are to conserve because of their really, really slow maturity rates and just the spiritual importance of these trees to so many different cultures has really kind of saved it in a way because it's not overexploited because so many people do rely on this tree. You know, they they don't cut them down. They harvest the fruits and, you know, they eat that or they might eat some of the bark, but this tree is actually really well adapted to bark disturbances. Mm -hmm. And whether it's a person or an elephant or what have you, whenever bark gets scraped off of a baobab, it just kind of heals up, which is unique. A lot of trees, if you scrape off their bark, it's pretty much a death sentence. (laughs) They really can't recover from that. But the baobabs, a lot of their kind of twisting growth patterns is actually because of old injuries. Um, So they just kind of split and kind of form like a new trunk whenever they have an injury like that. So kind of cool. That's really cool. Yeah. And I love that, you know, it's those primarily probably large grazers and things like elephants that led to that adaptation, but it's also super helpful for people too. Yeah, totally. And something that has kind of come to light with research for these guys is that, you know, they have these huge white flowers, but we don't know exactly what it is that's pollinating them. And without pollination, they won't produce seeds. They won't be able to, you know, reproduce and make new baobabs and then we'll lose all of them. (laughs) So it's Mm. kind of important to know what pollinates these flowers and so there's a lot of research right now going on with that, especially with the ones on Madagascar, since there are so many uh, very, you know, unique species that are on that island. Mm-hmm. There's actually a subspecies where there's two trees left. Two. God, how old are they? Pretty old. <laughs> Over a thousand. With these trees, it's actually really, really hard to age them. Because you can't just, like, count the rings. You actually, because of the way that they grow and the way that they, like, react to, you know, damage to their bark, you have to actually, like, radiocarbon date them and use, like, a lot of, like, fancy molecular science and stuff that I don't understand. I don't know how that stuff Mm. works. (laughs) You can't just count the tree rings. Plus, counting a thousand tree rings would take a while. Um, (laughs) 
but they're really, really hard to date. And as such, again, baobabs are kind of left out of the conversation when we're talking about really, really old trees. If you search like oldest trees in the world, like a bunch of like aspens and trees that grow as like a colony pop up. And a lot of times the baobab is completely removed from that conversation. So Hmm. kind of interesting. That is interesting. And sad. (laughs) Yeah. Wow, that's so sad because people love trees. Yeah, right? And like, why why aren't you loving this one? <laughs> it's, it, yeah, it sucks. But like I said, there's a lot of really cool pollinator research going on. So I, I mentioned they have giant white flowers. What kind of pollinators do you think they use? If flies. they have giant white flowers. Flies? Flies? Bats. Bats, yeah. Okay. <laughs> Fly, flies is a good guess for a white flower. Yeah, yeah. White flowers, you know, they're obviously, well, not obviously. A white flower is probably not attracting, like, birds or butterflies because birds and butterflies like really colorful flowers. But white flowers also tend to bloom at night. The baobabs does bloom at night. Um, And that white flower is obviously going to stand out at night. So they're using a lot of nocturnal pollinators, which also makes it really hard to study um, (laughs) because, you know, Mm. it's nighttime. We can't see at night. Um, But specifically, a lot of bats have been shown to pollinate baobabs and then also a lot of hawk moths, which are those like really, really big moths that when they're flying around during the day, they almost look like hummingbirds. So Mm. go moths. Yeah, go moths. (laughs) (laughs) And those night blooming flowers only last maybe 12, 15 hours. And the tree will only produce a couple at a time, which again makes it super difficult to study what it is that's pollinating them, but is a really cool on an evolutionary standpoint because if you have like a grove of baobabs, you as a single baobab would rather have your flower be pollinated by a different tree than your own flowers because that's going to increase genetic diversity all that good stuff. So each tree will only have a couple flowers to ensure that the pollinators have to move from tree to tree in order to pollinate them. So. Right. Yeah. Yeah. That's cool. It's crazy what trees have to do to survive in like, you know, a grassland. <laughs> yeah, no kidding. It's it's crazy in general, the things that plants can do to even control stuff like self-pollination. Yeah. But then adding in this extra like dimension of... Yeah, being in this setting. Mm-hmm. So cool. So, so cool. <laughs> <laughs> so I mentioned that there is one baobab species in Australia. In Australia, it's known as the boab. The Don't know boab. why. Australians okay. just always have to have different names for everything. Um, but it's known as the boab. So not only is there controversy on, you know, are these landscapes with boabs? savannas are they forests are they grasslands who knows we know but there's a lot of controversy on how in the world the boab got to australia (laughs) yeah (laughs) like like how it's so far it's like eleven thousand kilometers or something like that between australia and like madagascar africa insane it's so much space so much just open ocean And there's kind of two different ideas on how this happened. Um, One would be that, you know, people 
brought it along with them as they moved out of Africa, which makes sense. This tree, again, is very important spiritually, but also just as a really amazing resource for food and shelter. But looking at the genetics of these trees, it suggests that the Boab was there before people were. (laughs) Okay, this is fun. This is spicy. I'm into it. So if that is true, how, how, like, it doesn't make any sense. How, how? Um, (laughs) And the only other like semi-logical thing that I could find was that the fruit that are full of seeds, obviously, just kind of floated over there. (laughs) (laughs) I love it. And then a lot of other scientists are like, there's no way the the fruit would get waterlogged and it would sink and the, you know, the seeds inside would be destroyed. There's no way. And then the floating seed scientists are like, well, maybe there's like a really big storm. And so it like floated over there on like a raft of debris. And uh, maybe since it was a storm, the water was moving really quickly. So it really wasn't in the water that long. And then other people are like, okay, but that's kind of a reach. (laughs) And it is, but it is, but also it got there somehow, guys. (laughs) Yeah, like, I mean, because oh, also, we know for a fact that the Boab got to Australia after Gondwana split up. So the supercontinent Gondwana. So we know that it wasn't just a matter of like animals or anything like dispersing the seeds. We know that for a fact. Right. So it got there after Australia was already, you know, an island and way far removed from Africa. So. Oh, that's exciting. (laughs) Yeah. After Gondwana broke up, but before humans. How did it get there? <laughs> That's, yeah. And I mean, it sounds like the fruit scientists, the floating fruit scientists have some ideas. Yes. Even if yes. it's a stretch, it's like, hey, you know, life finds a way. <laughs> Sometimes <laughs> there we go. things there we that go. are weird happen. <laughs> but yeah, literally we don't know. There's no real, like, we don't know. There's just a bunch of hypotheses out there. I even saw one that was like, maybe because... In all of our stories of, like, Aboriginal culture on Australia, the Boab has always been there. But in all of our stories in Africa, the Boabab has always been there. So it's like, Mm. did it originate in Australia and then move to Africa? (laughs) Yeah. We don't know. We We don't know. know. (laughs) Oh, that's so exciting. Yeah. So lots of mystery in the Boabab uh, genus. Lots of weird things going on. Nobody knows what's going on. And that's okay. It just means that we have future questions to answer later. <laughs> I think it's not okay. Well, I mean, it's not okay if nobody finds the answers. But we do yeah. need the answers, especially because it's so weird. And it's it's honestly kind of shocking to me that we don't know more. Yeah, same. Because of how, like, culturally significant these trees are and, like, mm-hmm. iconic and unique. I don't know. Yeah. Yeah, it's wild. Ah. This ah. this was the rabbit hole that I ran down. Was like Boabs in Australia. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> uh, so yeah, yeah. No regrets because it is fascinating. <laughs> it is absolutely fascinating, and we need to curb our tree hatred a little bit. So <laughs> it was a good detour for us personally to take. Mm-hmm. 
Yes. I agree. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, that's Madagascar and the Boabab tree, which also somehow wraps in Australia, but we don't know how. Thank you for sharing that. That was <laughs> not at all what I expected. And as usual, just beautifully mind-blowing. <laughs> I'm so glad. And thanks again, uh, Brandon, for the episode suggestion and the continued grassland love. Sorry, yeah. it took literally. So today, when we're recording this, is exactly four months since I said Madagascar episode coming soon. <laughs> Did you really? So, okay, that's yeah. so funny. We're pretty bad about that. <laughs> Has not really been kind of soon. <laughs> it is kind of soon, I guess, in the grand scheme of things. <laughs> How yes. have we been doing this podcast that long? I I don't know, man. It's wild. <laughs> well, hey, we got to it in less than a year, so I think that's kind of a victory. I think so, too. <laughs> also coming soon, Pleistocene Park. Ooh, I'm so Ooh. excited. You have no idea. <laughs> okay. Well, uh, if that's all, then I guess all we have left to do is say thanks to all of our people for listening to the best bio. <laughs> As always, if you enjoyed this episode, please share and consider leaving us a review on Podchaser or Apple Podcasts. It really helps us out a lot. Follow us on Twitter and you know how to contact us. All the links in the description. And that's it. So, uh, yeah. Thanks, Nicole. And uh, we'll see you guys next time. Honestly, I'm kind of disappointed in myself because when I think of Madagascar animals, I only really think of forest species like uh -huh. lemurs. But also, how many of these forest species are actually savanna species, simply being called forest species? Like, I was looking at, you know, animals of Central Highlands, and there's tenrics that only live in the Central Highlands of Madagascar, but if the Central Highlands of Madagascar are actually That's savannas and therefore grasslands... It's not a forest species! Are tenrics, tenrics are a savanna, savanna species. species. They're grasslands. Yeah. Dude, what? Yeah. Hang on, are tenrics so, only found there? No, it's like one or okay, two specific okay. species. They're found cool. like... Everywhere. I was just double checking. But dang. Yeah. <laughs> that so, is yeah. that is some earth-shattering revelations I though. Like seriously you need to reevaluate <laughs> how we classify those animals too. Yes. Grassland erasure. It's real. Grassland erasure. Oh, the most barren and devastating landscape to ever set eyes upon. <laughs> no. Nope. No. Nope. Nope. It's beautiful. Stop it.